Good to see you today. Good morning again. And um, I, I am curious, who believes that this day is the worst day of the year? Amen. Oh, man. You know, I, however, I was reflecting on this. Do you remember old school when daylight savings used to be two weeks later than today? It wasn't too long ago. And, and it hit me, that would have been Easter sunrise and... You know, 6 a.m. would have become 5 a.m. And uh, praise be to God, our Father, for daylight savings today. Glad you made it up. Welcome, 9 o'clock crew who, uh, who came. And uh, it's good to see you. Listen, um, before we jump into the rest of the service today, um, you probably haven't done this yet. I'm going to ask you, please do it now. Connection cards. You'll find them on the chairs. Take a few seconds and, uh, and fill one out. Let us know you worshiped. Flip it to the back. You'll see a spot for prayer requests. Uh, um, if you have any questions or various faith challenges maybe you want to take, you can drop those in the bucket when the ushers come by. Um, you brought an offering today. Drop that in the bucket as well. If you're new with us today, don't get uh, in any sense obligated on that offering thing. We're just so glad you're here checking us out. And uh, again, let me just say, um, you know, welcome. You get enough time to write? Yeah? Okay. Ushers, you. Let's let them do that. Let me tell you about what's coming up seven days from today. Palm Sunday, seven days. Next Sunday, worship at 9 and 1030. This was the day in history when Jesus came into Jerusalem that kick-started people proclaiming him as Messiah to be followed by his death and then his resurrection three days later. When Jesus came into Jerusalem, it was packed, it was huge, it was kind of like Mardi Gras, is how you want to imagine it, except imagine everyone walking to Mardi Gras instead of driving or flying. The city of Jerusalem would swell, some estimate from 30 to 50,000 inside to maybe as many as half a million. Um, think about just trying to contain something like that and the energy and the pulse of it all. And that's what we get to taste next Sunday. And what we want you to do is um, walk to church next Sunday, all right? Rain, snow, or shine. It could be a day like today. It could be like sub five degrees, and it could be 92. All seem viable possibilities given our weather patterns. Walk to church. And um, let's pack the house. Invite some people to walk with you. T call or text someone this week and just make it utterly random. Say, hey, man, I'm going to church next Sunday. Just uh, walk with me. And, and, and I tell you this, weird attracts, right? And, and, and people's sick, twisted need to know will sometimes prick the imagination to go, what on earth does this mean? The farther you're walking, the better. In fact, I encourage some of you to move out of state in the next week and, uh, and make the journey really count, all right? If you ordered a T-shirt last week for the pilgrimage, they are available at the Welcome Center, all right? If you did not order a T-shirt last week, but you want one, we've got some extras at the Welcome Center. Uh, Ten bucks a piece, but I got two freebies now. Loud and proud, who wants one? Bam, all right. Bam, in the back, duck. All right, all right. Did I hit the baby? Let's aim and shoot. All right. Um, 
there's a map that's posted up at the Welcome Center as well. And uh, some people asked for this last week, going, man, I'd like to just see where other people are like walking from. And um, if you wouldn't mind doing this, if you are doing the pilgrimage, just stop by before you leave, pin up your name, maybe throw your, your email, your cell phone number on it, uh, let people see who's maybe in your area. And uh, every year, it never fails, with like these pilgrim parties that uh, just kind of gather for this type of thing. So uh, I encourage you to try it, especially if it's uh, brand new for you, okay? Week after that, um, oh, there's the slide. Week after that, we've got Easter, and we are putting together a one-shot chorus again for Easter this year. And if you'd like to be a part of something like this, it's like two rehearsals and then Easter Sunday, go to the Welcome Center, or you can email Mark Chaffee, or you can email Stacy Curtis. Stacy, can I just have you stand for a minute? Talk to either of them, and um, Stacy asked me to uh, put this out as well. If you've already signed up for this, but you haven't gotten an email yet, there may have been an email snafu, so go talk to them because information did go out, and uh, we'll get that all straightened out. Make sense? One shot in two weeks. Finally, um, one more thing I want to put on the grid. I don't even want to think about this yet. It is so premature, but um, we've got a table out there in the Welcome Center today, and... Uh, it's about landscaping. And um, what we do every year at FOF is we put together a team of volunteers to um, mow the lawn, because we're on 20 acres, and that is a freaking lot of lawn. Would you agree? And um, to, to, to adopt islands and landscape them and stuff like that. This church actually saves over $10,000 a year by doing it in-house this way as opposed to hiring a service. Here's how it works. We got a high-speed mower. We've got competitions that go all summer about who can make record-breaking time, all right? And uh, what you do is you sign up in about once a month between April and October. You go through rotation, you get a plot of about five acres, and you tear up some sod. It's as easy as that. You do it on your timetable, at your schedule. You come, you want to mow at 3 a.m.? I don't live around here. I don't have to hear you. I don't care, all right? That's all right. Stop by the table afterwards. Um, likewise, the... Um, the landscaping island adoption thing, if you're into uh, that type of thing more, is there as well. Make sense? All right, let's kind of put that over there and let's jump in to some things that I just want to share with you um, today. I was here last Sunday, I don't know how many of you were, and with this amazing woman who was standing up here named Kristen, who was sharing this just like jaw-dropping, oh my gosh, incredible story of God working in the, the struggle and the pain and the adversity of her life and, and, and having this moment all week going, how do you even follow that? You know what I mean? Who, who caught that last week? Were you here? Was that not incredible or what? And Hearing her just unfold her story of, well, honestly, the way God showed his faithfulness to her in, in utterly surprising ways through this journey that she's been on. But what something kind of struck me in the middle of it, and as I've been thinking about it since, you know, Kristen made the point that before she had to live this path of life that her journey took, she knew God. She knew a lot of things about him. 
She knew who he was. She would say she had a relationship with him. And I mean, it, it, it was there. But it took this, this pain and this struggle and this trial in her life for her to know him. She came to know him. She knew him. But through that, she knew him. You know, do you know the distinction I'm talking about? We can know things, Right? But isn't there a difference between knowing things and you know, knowing things? And I want to pick up on that today. I, I want to pick up on that with something a lot of us know. And the idea is here, that Jesus is God. Monotheism. Throughout these past several weeks, we have been looking at these, these deeply embedded Old Testament promises and ideas and seeing how Paul, in coming face-to-face with Jesus and coming to know him, was forced to rethink all of those in a different light. And what I want to talk about really today is, is the idea of monotheism, specifically Jesus is God, but not just knowing it, but what it means to know it. Now, here's where I'd like us to begin. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I actually want you to look at this with me. Pull out a Bible, if you would, underneath a chair. Deuteronomy 6 is this incredible I'm going to call it a mantra, a motto, a slogan, a pledge of allegiance, a foundational statement that defines the entire Hebraic world in relation to this idea called monotheism. Israel has just finished wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because, well, as Paul would write, No one was righteous, not even one. All turned away. The poison of vipers was on their lips. Idolatry was embedded in their heart. Their feet were swift to shed blood, and none of them feared God. And it led them to 40 years in the wilderness, not enjoying the blessing and favor of the promised land that God promised to bring. But it's 40 years later, and it's the next gen Moses is giving his kind of like final state of the union. It's his, it's his, it's his you know, like final tour farewell speech. And he heads it off with these amazing words in Deuteronomy 6. And it begins in verse 4, or at least that's where I want to begin with you today. And this is how it goes. Pay attention. I know it says here. Don't miss the thrust of it. Listen up, pay attention, because there's something I've got to say. There's something I've got to say, and you don't want to miss it. There's something I've got to say, and you don't want it to go in one ear and out the other. Pay attention. What I am about to tell you is foundational to it all. And then he says this, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. Shema Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Just cool to say it that way, isn't it? <laughs> Yahweh our God, Yahweh is Echad, Yahweh is 
one. To which if you're like me and you grew up in a Christian home and you grew up going to church, you go, that's cool, let's go, right? What's profound about that? To the people of Israel, everything. Have you ever noticed that the more you spend embedded and bombarded by countervailing thoughts, ideas that are just considered normal in life around you and in culture, the more you find yourself embedded in them and, 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 and swirled in them, the more that even if it's abnormal, it starts to feel normal. This was utterly countercultural in a world where the belief was that there was gods of every stripe and variety, as many as people, each of them needing to be placated or bought off or bribed in a special kind of way. For Moses to come and say, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, one God, one God. One God above all others. One God despite all others. Yahweh is one. Which leads me to ask, what does that actually mean? Yahweh is one. Is it a statement that there's one God overall? Like the rest is myth, there's just one. And his name is Yahweh. Is it something like this? Whatever this thing Yahweh is, it is so united and together it can only be described as one. Is it something like this? Yahweh our God. Yahweh alone. No matter how many others there are for you, just one. And one alone. Somehow, in some way, embedded into the, the center of what it means to have a relationship with God and who this God is that the Israelites were called to serve is the idea that he is one. Now, follow along with me, because at verse 5, he goes on to describe what that's like. And he says, love the Lord your God, love Yahweh with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Love him with every fiber of your being. And if to say that Yahweh alone was controversial, if to say that that was countercultural, this was equally so, because in the ancient world, you never had a love relationship with a God. None of them. You could look at all the religions of the ancient world. None of them are based in this idea of love of God for people and love of people for the God. There's something different happening here, something out of the ordinary. From everything they came to experience taking place. Now, i got a question for you today. Have you ever been around someone who has been absolutely whipped? Okay. Have you ever been absolutely whipped? All right. Do you know how to tell if you're absolutely whipped? Okay. If your friends tell you that you're absolutely whipped, all right, you're probably whipped. Okay? If your friends tell you that you're absolutely whipped and your answer is, <laughs> you're definitely whipped. <laughs> okay? 
check your texts this past week. If you have sent over 100 texts to a single individual, I'm sorry, you're whipped. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, uh, are you with me? I remember 23 years ago when I was absolutely whipped. And I remember driving four hours through Chicago traffic through 8094 every weekend and liking it. All right? To see the one who captured my heart. This was before texting, of course. I still have boxes of this day where we would actually write notes. I hate to write. And we would write notes, and we would drop notes, and we would hide them in the most weird and inconspicuous places. Have you ever opened the refrigerator and found a note, like, in the milk, right? It just... <laughs> It's how you know you're whipped. We do things when we're whipped that are just plain dumb. Would you agree? <laughs> but when you're whipped, would you trade it for anything? How do you know when you're whipped? When it occupies you day and night. When you become obsessive. When, it's be when it becomes what you think about, what you dream about, what you look forward to. Guys, it's, it, it, it's the reason why we wear deodorant and wash our clothes. <laughs> Girls, it, right, right, well, that's probably the reason you wear deodorant and wash your clothes too. I'm just taking a step. You know what I mean? It, it, it's the one that captures and bends our heart to lead us to do things not just as an idea, but as something that becomes a fiber of our being, kind of a transference from something up here to something in the gut. Look at what Deuteronomy 6 has to say. Verse 6, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and of your gates. Can I just sum it up by saying this? Be whipped. What is God saying? Be whipped. Because there is a God in heaven who was whipped for you. There was a God in heaven who is so into you and passionate about you and in love with you that it can only be described with the term whipped. You know why it's monotheism? Because all the other gods got sick of hearing them go off about you all the time, right? You've been around people who are whipped, all they talk about, right? Hey, did I tell you what Tina's doing? Hey, hey, hey. Right? Okay, good, good. I'll see you later. I swear, those other gods, they were probably there. They vacated heaven because they don't want to hear it anymore. Because <laughs> God is whipped for you. And what Moses invites the people of Israel into is, is this, this amazing relationship with one God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Be whipped for him. I almost wonder if Moses were writing this today. How he might like describe the process differently. 
Drive every day to see them, no matter how far it is. Put their name on your screensaver and let it flash before your eyes again and again. Get it tattooed on your arm with a big red heart. Get it tattooed on your face, because you are whipped, right? Text them again and again and again. Talk about it with your friends in the morning. Talk about it with your coworkers at work. Talk about it with your family at night. Take the idea of one God from being an idea to something that lives in here. Because monotheism for ancient Israel was never an idea or a proposition. It wasn't bare belief. It was something greater by far, something that you had in here. Nothing short of pledging yourself and your allegiance to one God, Yahweh, in a loving relationship, whipped. And Paul comes face to face with Jesus. And it turns everything on its head. Because he begins to realize that the one he condemned, the one he hated, the one he rejected and dismissed was nothing short of the living Yahweh who he claimed to love, for whom he was whipped. Standing right before him. He came to realize that everything the scripture said about Yahweh was coming to pass in Jesus, that everything the scripture said was true about Yahweh, was true of Jesus, that everything the scripture said about the character and essence of who Yahweh is, Jesus embodied right before his eyes that Jesus was nothing short of Yahweh, Himself. It's why when you look in his letters, he takes things like Deuteronomy 6.4 and he works them over in new and fresh ways. Look at this verse out of 1 Corinthians and keep Deuteronomy 6.4 in your mind. For there is but one God and Deuteronomy 6 folk would say, yeah, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And I love the next word. There's one God and right? There's one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. And look at how he identifies him. Do you see a similarity in the verse itself? Through whom all things came and through whom we now live. That in coming face to face with Jesus Paul was forced to no other conclusion than that this man was the living embodiment of Yahweh himself. But it's not enough to know it. My bet is the majority of you in this room right now have come to this place You've come to this place, you go, yeah, I believe that Jesus is God. 
But there's a difference between knowing and knowing. You might be here today going, yeah, I believe Jesus is God, but you know even the demons believe that. And shudder. Because monotheism, whether Old or New Testament, was never something about bare belief. It was about something more, pledging your loyalty and love to one God and one God alone. You know, monotheism is so taken for granted today that to talk about anything else almost seems laughable. The debate today isn't like one God or many gods. The debate today is one God or no God, right? And it's easy, especially if you're kind of on the one God side of that fence, to kind of stand with a certain sense of smug superiority, looking at the people in the past like they're kind of like these, oh, these simple-minded fools who thought that the rivers had God and stuff like that. But, you know, I came across this quote by the 16th century monk who was reflecting on what it means to have no other gods before me, as Yahweh would say. And he writes this. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. How do you define God here today? Hit it one more time. To whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, being that I say is really your God. Here's the question, and there's no way around it. To what have you given your heart? To what have you given your heart? What captures you? What lights you up? What delights you and drives you? For what in this world are you whipped? You ask yourself that question. And I start to realize I'm the biggest polytheist of them all. How about you? Because monotheism was never about bare belief, but loyalty and love and allegiance. And asking that will show you your God's. To say Jesus is Lord, to confess Jesus is God, is not to figure out some cosmic map in the universe. It is a way of life, a way of love, and a way of devotion. When Paul writes things like this, and we say things like this. We're saying nothing short of Jesus. I'm whipped for you. I want to be whipped for you. And I don't want to share it with others. Do you know that when you're whipped, you rarely have eyes for anyone else? Have you experienced I've experienced that in my life. There's plenty of times you got eyes for many people, right? But in those moments when you're whipped, 
focused. You and you alone. Welcome to monotheism. Welcome to what it means to call Jesus your God, your Savior.